I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, they discuss the U.S.-Japan deal on steel, trade with China following the release of new data about purchases under the Phase 1 deal, and a request for consultations under USMCA regarding an endangered species. All that and more on this week's episode. All right. Hello, Trade Guys. Nice to have you back this week. Let's get started with some news that happened on Monday, which is that the United States and Japan reached a steel deal that deals with both overcapacity and carbon intensity of steel traded. Is this basically the same agreement as the global arrangement on sustainable steel between the U.S. and Europe? Uh, not exactly, no. The outlines are similar. That it's, it's a tariff rate quota. They're going to let in I think 1.25 million tons without the tariff, and then above that level, the tariff resumes. That is a little bit more than the Japanese exported in 2021, 2020, and 2019. It is less than what they exported in 2018, and uh, a good bit less. The last full year before tariffs was 2017, and the Japanese uh, exported, I think, 1.7 million tons. So this is less than that, but more than recently. That part of it uh, is the same. It has a melted and poured provision, meaning that the steel that is eligible for the favorable treatment has to be melted and poured in Japan. They can't simply circumvent the rules and you know move it over from Korea and relabel it and ship it here as Japanese. The thing that's different is that the U.S. declined to invite them to participate in the negotiations that we intend to have with the EU to try to develop a, a structure for dealing more effectively with global overcapacity and dealing more effectively with making our steel greener technologically. And frankly, maybe Scott can enlighten us. I'm a little bit baffled as to why they did that. I mean, the answer, the stated answer was that, well, I mean, they said it nicer than this, but basically that Japan still has a, its own capacity problem, which means it has subsidies, and their steel is not particularly green, and they need to work on those things. And until they work on those things more successfully, we're not going to let them into our little group, which kind of confuses me because you'd think you'd want more people in the group all working in the, in the same direction, but apparently not. I'm, I'm also curious about why Japan was excluded from these further talks, because regardless of the state of Japanese carbon intensity or whatever the measure is for steel production, they are sophisticated enough to be part of the solution for improving it. So I would consider them that way, but don't know. I will say this is a masterful marketing job on the part of the, uh, on the, part of the administration. Now keep in mind, this, this is, this is a, a, a resolution of a problem that was heavily criticized when the Trump administration created it. This is the Section 232 National Security Tariffs on Steel and Aluminum, which, of course, uh, the initial investigation and the tariffs in 2018 sent the, all the traders to the fading couches, and everybody was horrified that, that it, would, it would be used this way. As I see the, the arrangement that we have now, first of all, aluminum was untouched. So there are still Section 232 uh, National Security Tariffs on 
Japanese aluminum. Second, and Bill, you made this point, is the the, the tariff rate quota is not only less than previous, you know, sort of non non pandemic year, sort of well below the the pre pre two thirty two imports, but also uh, it affects all steel, not just the steel that was affected by the 232 quotas or t- tariffs. And, and uh, so the, you also have the tariff broken up into 54 different categories. So it's very complicated to administer it. So the, the conclusion is, I don't know who's happy with this. Obviously, the U.S. government is because it's not what Trump did. If I were a steel user, I'd be concerned because it looks to me steel is not going to be any less expensive in the near term, given both the complexity of the tariff rate quota administration and the fact that it's pretty small compared to what likely the normal market conditions might be. So hello inflation, but uh, but in any case, somehow this was this was a big win. So I'll I'll, I'll congratulate the uh, the press brief writers and uh, other Washington wags on that. Well, you know, one of my passing amusements and frustrations has been that every administration never makes a mistake. You know, if you listen to them, every decision is brilliant and every event is a success. Uh, and everything works. I think the last time the government admitted it made a mistake was uh, President Kennedy in the Bay of Pigs. So it would be nice every once in a while if they would say, oh, well, we really messed that one up. But um, they did not do that in this case. And I think what it shows, if anything, is that this is an administration that is going to continue to do what the last one did, which is to protect the domestic steel industry. And I've, as I've said on other occasions, I think if there's ever, if there's an industry that that deserves it, based on the unfair practices they've been that have victimized them. It's it's the steel industry, but uh, at the same time, it, it does raise downstream prices, and in an era of inflation, these kinds of actions are a bigger problem than in an era when prices are are stable. Uh, so we'll see. I think the more important question than that, though, is can we get the non-China steel-producing world all to march collectively against China on overcapacity and try to deal with what is the real source of the problem, not the fake source of the problem. And, you know, the administration seems to be committed to doing that, at least with Europe. I don't think that much has begun yet, but at least it's on the schedule. You know, I hope they can find a way to bring Japan into it, because the reality is this is a case where, you know, they're only going to succeed if they can line everybody up. And if there's an outlier, then, you know, the, the, whatever system they devise is going to be leaky. Yeah, it seemed to me that, that the, the more partners would be better than fewer in this in this situation. Also, I always think the United States comes out better when you have some other partners, like rather than just turn it into a bilateral with Europe, because uh, then there's there too many games emerge, much like the subsidy discussions that, that were held. Europe had its own agenda and couldn't really wind up doing what the United States had hoped to do with Japan. So we'll see how it works. We wish him better luck this time. But uh, Trump light lives on in the Biden administration, press uh, briefings notwithstanding. Yes, you heard it here first, listeners. Trump light. We've talked about that before. That's spelled L-I-T-E, not L-I-G-H-T. So the Biden administration has also undertaken uh, a different sort of arrangement, if you want to call it that, uh, with the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the, the IPEF, of course, the recent arrangement on sustainable steel and aluminum with Europe, and now this agreement with Japan. What does this say about the Biden administration's broader approach to trade? How are they going about it? Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, there doesn't seem to be a clear pattern. I think a lot of observers have pointed that out. I think Bill and I have pointed that out before. 
they're having trouble getting their sea legs in this. And there are probably some reasons why, including sort of the multiple crises that uh, the administration is being faced with. But if I were a trading partner, I'd have trouble making sense of it. I think you have to look at it in, in pieces. Some of it is, is cleanup. I mean, Trump left them with a lot of messes. He left them with, you know, the Boeing Airbus problem. He left them with the steel tariffs. He left them with the China 301 tariffs. He left them with, you know, launched agreements, launched negotiations with Kenya and the UK. And a lot of what they've done the first year is try to clean some of that stuff up. Uh, they haven't fully succeeded, but it's been a, a preoccupation. I wouldn't say those are their policies. I think they're simply trying to deal with the, 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 the potholes in the road that the last administration left. The Indo-Pacific framework is is in a different category because that's their thing. Uh, it's new. We've uh, done the commercial on this before. Matt Goodman and I wrote a paper on it, which you can see on the CSIS website, which I think is, uh, has actually gotten a lot of uh, attention and a good bit of praise, maybe because it was the first one. But, um, you know, it's worth looking at if you want to try, try to figure out how to make the IPEF into a real thing. Our take collectively on, on what happened, I think, is that the administration recognized that it was being criticized last summer and into the fall for not having an Asian economic policy. And there's a widespread belief by virtually everybody that they need one, that if you're going to uh, affirm the presence of the United States in the Indo-Pacific region, sending an aircraft carrier through the South China Sea every other month doesn't do the job. You need to have an economic presence. And they realized in August or so that the president was heading into several Asia summits, the APEC summit, the ASEAN summit, and the G20, which included some uh, Asian countries. And that, uh, as with uh, a lot of what goes on in, in politics, you know, events become action forcing. You're going to go to someplace, in this case it was virtual, but you're joining an event, you're going to give a speech, you got to have something to say, otherwise you look like an idiot. And so somebody at the White House was, and we think we know who it was, was tasked with filling in the blanks. You know, we need to come up with something for the president to propose at these various summits. And she did, and he did, and it's the Indo-Pacific framework. It turns out it is 51 words in one paragraph of what the president said. And there are some subterranean papers floating around that are one or two pages. And right now, everybody is busy trying to put meat on the bone to turn it into something. And I think the approach that Matt and I took was to begin by saying, first, you know, the best answer would be to join CPTPP. Everybody thinks that, well, not everybody, but I think everybody that really thinks about these things comes to that conclusion. The administration clearly is not there yet. And so our approach was, they're not where they need to be. IPEF is plan B. So how do we make plan B real? You know, how do we make it a success? And we have a whole bunch of suggestions. You can read the paper if you want. I think the thing that's worrisome about it, which goes back to Scott's point about them not really getting their sea legs yet, is uh, they made two important upfront decisions that I think are mistakes. One is they took market access to, off the table. And the second is they said they weren't going to submit it to Congress. You know, if you're an Asian country, and we talked to some of them while we were researching the paper, and the phrase that kept coming to us from Asia was, we need to see tangible benefits, which was a nice way of saying, you know, what's in it for us, which is what countries are supposed to say. And for a lot of those countries, what's in it for us is market access and uh, into the United States market. And we took that off the table from the beginning. So that was one problem. 
The other problem was when you say we're not submitting it to Congress for approval, what you're really saying to the Asians is, you know, we don't intend to make any major concessions. Because if we do make any major concessions, we have to get Congress to approve them. So what we're going to have here is an agreement in which we will keep doing what we're doing, uh, and we want you to agree to do something different. And I think the problem with that, of course, is that for a lot of the Asian countries, especially the small ones and, and the ones in, in Southeast Asia, including the not-so-small ones, you know, they have to, everything they do is, is uh, they, they have to figure out what the Chinese reaction is going to be. You know, when you, the Mexicans have the same problem with us. When you have a very, very large neighbor, uh, you have to think about your actions very carefully. If we want Vietnam or Indonesia to participate in this, and I think we do, we need to give them enough so they can say to the Chinese, we have really good reasons for doing this, you know, notwithstanding your unhappiness. And we haven't really come up with that yet. And that worries me. I think they're busy trying to, come, trying to do that. because I think they recognize that there have to be some sweeteners in there. You know, even uh, close allies like Japan and Australia, you know, they have domestic political processes. They have to come back to their constituencies and say, well, we got something. You know, here's what it is. If we can't come up with something, I think what you get is the usual suspects, which means Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Singapore, probably Korea, agreeing to things, for example, in digital trade, that they've already agreed to in bilateral agreements or other agreements, and things they're already doing. So you get, you know, relatively small commitments from a relatively uh, small number of countries, uh, which I don't think is what the administration had in mind. And so I hope what they're working on is a way to pump that up and make it bigger. Just want to add the observation that it's not just our trading partners who are concerned about the lack of market access talks. It is competitive American exporters. And there are a number of, of globally competitive industries and firms in the United States which would love a market access negotiation, which would work for it and would help get it through Congress. But if it's not happening, it's like the, the American firms and farmers and, and uh, industries who could be part of that deal and could be supporting it publicly and politically are going to say, what's in this for us? Same problem. One of the uh, amusing things that happened along the way is after our paper came out, we got an e Matt and I got an email from an old and good friend of ours who said, you didn't talk about agriculture, you know, and the farmers are very upset. They want to they export more. And my answer was, well, we didn't talk about it because we decided we would talk about the six things the president mentioned when he announced it, and agriculture wasn't one of those. And so that's why we did that. So his response was interesting. It was that he had heard that one of the things the administration was thinking about, even though they didn't mention agriculture, was going after some agriculture non-tariff barriers, probably in the trade facilitation basket, because that's, that is on the list, and that's kind of a big um, umbrella where you can put in a lot of barriers. And I guess my reaction to that was, good, you know, if you can break down other people's barriers, that's fine. But that's not exactly a sweetener for the foreigners. I mean, what you're telling them is, we want you to buy more of our farm products. I mean, that's a great message to U.S. farmers. I'm not sure it's a great message to their competitors in Indonesia or in Malaysia or in Vietnam or, or in Australia or New Zealand, for that matter. Yeah, we, we probably need to raise our sights here. But, you know, in the, in the, in the words of the, the great Robert Strauss, every state has two senators and at least two cows. So agriculture always matters. It's always something you can do. And we are globally competitive. So let's get after it. 
Well, agriculture and exports are a good segue to the next topic, which is that there's new data out this week that demonstrates that China failed to purchase an additional $2 billion of U.S. exports uh, that were initially agreed to during the Trump phase one deal that expired or with the deadline of December 2021. What recourse does the Biden administration have to force China to scale up its commitments under phase one? Well, in the spirit of admitting when we didn't get it right, this is an outcome that I think both Bill and I predicted would be the positive outcome of the U.S.-China Section 301 negotiations and wasn't. Uh, when Recall, the investigation into unfair practices had a negotiated agreement about certain elements of reform, intellectual property and uh, some, uh, in, some internal domestic market access to services. There were a number of, of categories in that area. And it had, because President Trump insisted on purchase agreement, quantitative measures for additional U.S. exports, it had this commitment to buy another $200 billion of U.S. exports. And the, the bidding at the time was, I think both Bill and I concluded that China tended to meet its numerical commitments. And if they thought, didn't think it was in their interest, they would sort of stick handle us on the domestic reform, the agenda. And we, we both, I think, thought the domestic reform agenda was more important, but we'd take the exports. And it turns out that they've delivered neither. As I read uh, our colleague uh, at the Peterson Institute, Chad Bounds, recap of this, you know, China imported roughly the same amount of U.S. goods as they did before the, the agreement and before COVID. And then it, when it comes to services, because services dropped dramatically during uh, the pandemic, services are down overall in terms of our services exports to China. So not a great outcome for phase one. I have to say, Scott has committed the cardinal sin of punditry. He's reminded people when we were wrong. Usually what we do is when we're right, we remind people endlessly that we were right. And we figure that uh, they've moved on to other things they don't remember when we were wrong. I've only been at this for 40 years, Bill. I'll try to improve with, with age. <laughs> so. I did think that when you give them a numerical, when they accept a numerical obligation, they usually meet it because it's embarrassing when they don't, and they didn't. They came, I think uh, Chad's uh, analysis was overall, they met about 57% of their commitments. In agriculture, they got to 83%, which is not terrible. Energy was the farthest behind at only about 25%. I think if, if there had not been a Boeing crisis, they would have done significantly better on the manufacturing side. But it's, it's disappointing. Emily's question was, you know, what, do we, what can we do about it? I think the tariffs were the Trump answer. Uh, I mean, the Trump approach was, I think, cart before horse, which was, you know, let's penalize them first and then hope they step up and do something. Usually you do it the other way around. You get the obligation first and then you you hit them when they fail. We've already hit them, so I'm not quite sure what what to do now. What to do now that they've failed? The administration, I think, is right to focus the, the dialogue on their failure, and that's the safest thing they can do. We've talked about this in the past. The risk for the president of having an actual real negotiation is that no matter what he brings back, the Republicans will say it's not good enough, and he ends up, you know, being kind of caught in a a box where you know they say he's weak and. He's got a, an agreement or not, but uh, you know it's, it's under attack. So I think they figured out the safest thing to do is, you know, let's get them for not keeping their word. Which who can object to that? You know, they made promises, they didn't keep them. Let's go after them. I guess the problem with that is it, you know, it's got kind of a short half life. Uh, twenty twenty one is history. 
phase one's over. There's only so many months you can keep on beating them over the head for something that's over and done with. I guess you can try to get them to say, well, we'll make another effort at it. We'll do better next time. They pretty much ruled out a phase two negotiation in, in the Trumpian sense. So doing better next time and finishing off the, the non-purchase commitments that they did not meet, of which there were a few, I think seven in agriculture and, and a number of others, fair game. I think what's going on, though, is a little bit different. I, I think that most of the administration has concluded that we're not likely to obtain much in a serious negotiation with China. And there's a political downside to trying to do that, which is what I just mentioned, and that it might be better simply to kind of get on with whatever punitive action we think is appropriate. The prevailing view so far has been, has been though, that before we do that, we need to construct a narrative to justify doing that. And that would mean we need to talk to them. Uh, on the one hand, you know, the optimists might say, well, maybe they have more to give and we'll get that. But even those, the people who don't believe that, I think, would say, if we're going to hit them again with anything, we need to justify that. And a failed negotiation is a good way to justify it. So let's go back at them. Let's tell them, you know, you need to do better. And then when, when that doesn't work, that uh, has created the narrative that then allows us to take further action. The only rumor of such action is that they might either maintain or increase the 301 tariffs on selected items, which would be primarily those that benefit from subsidies, benefit from forced technology transfers, or are generally speaking in high tech, and they would uh, get rid of the other ones, which would mollify uh, a lot of the business community, which has pointed out that these things have done as much or more damage to us as they've done to the Chinese between the, our tariffs and the retaliatory tariffs. And this is a way to kind of, you know, have your cake and eat it too, continue to uh, hit them where it, where it matters to us from a security perspective, but to, uh, you know, to clean up the rest of the mess. I don't know if they're going to do that or not, but that continues to be the prevailing rumor. Well, it seems like the disappointment in, uh, in quantitative commitments is an opportunity to, to state what your China policy actually is going forward. So that's, uh, I hope as they take time to, to reflect on the next step, that, that, that it turns into something that the Biden administration can live with in terms of dealing with China, which I think we badly need. Well, let's conclude today with a topic that has a real purpose. Yesterday, the United States requested consultations with Mexico over what it claims are Mexico's failure to enforce environmental laws uh, designed to prevent illegal fishing. It's led to the near extinction of the vaquita, of which there are only 10 left in the entire world. One of our intrepid interns kindly translated vaquita uh, earlier for me, and apparently it means little cow. I encourage uh, the listeners to look at a Google image search for vaquita. It's worth it. Uh, is this a shrimp turtle 2.0 kind of case? What, what's going on here? I can only say Emily's been dying all day to use that pun. And there's porpoise in her, man, you know, in, in her, in her method here, I guess. Is what, I think it's a little bit like shrimp turtle in the, in the sense that I, I don't think it's like the Mexicans are out to make this species extinct. Uh, in fact, they have laws against hunting these things. The issue has come up this week because USTR has asked to consult with Mexico over the relatively inadequate enforcement of those laws. I think if we're down to 10 vaquitas, you can, you can genuinely say that their enforcement is probably not very good. I don't think it's deliberate. Uh, you know, it's not like when we killed million, millions of beavers a century and a half ago because everybody wanted hats. Uh, I think they get caught up in the search for, you know, in massive gill nets and long fishing that just catches everything 
and, and they suffer, which is kind of the shrimp turtle case. Uh, I'm not sure there's a technological solution for this, though. I'm, I'm not that conversant with it. Scott, maybe you know. Well, actually, I don't, I don't know. And, and you, one of the problems is that fishing technology has, has reached the point where it is possible to basically harvest every single animal in the ocean if we wanted to, which would be very bad for the ocean because many species only, you know, particularly fish, only exist in schools. There's like not one sturgeon. There's a school of sturgeon or there's none. <laughs> so so it's, overfishing is a, a, still a big problem. The shrimp turtle case was somewhat unique. That was a dispute at the WTO, an early uh, WTO dispute uh, about uh, certain uh, excluder nets and certain uh, using using certain kinds of equipment, but the the decision that made it made it in made it a dispute at the WTO was not about the devices themselves, but rather the compliance period that we allowed some countries versus others. The United States lost the case, but we lost it because certain countries had a short compliance period and others had a long one. And what was unequal was not the equipment itself, but rather the time that the countries had to bring it into compliance. So it gets sensitive. It's uh, obviously fisheries are the, are the global commons, and I think everybody agrees on that. You don't need to have a debate about global warming to know that there are only so many fish, and it's an important part of many people's diet, and overfishing harms everyone, ultimately. So uh, I don't know if 10, uh, 10 Mexican uh, ugly porpoises is, is, is enough for a dispute, but it's, it's something that uh, I think consultation is probably worthwhile. And if there's a way to advance it, the great thing about technology is not only we have this great fishery technology, it means it can be used uh, in the positive sense of preserving the species. Uh, if you think about it hard enough, the, the people who do this for a living are professionals. So the shrimp turtle issue was, I mean, it's as Scott described, but I mean, the, the issue there was the issue we've mentioned before, which is national treatment. We were treating some countries differently than others. Uh, and that's what we lost. This one is different because it'll be bilateral. I mean, there's only 10 of them. There aren't that, there are, and, and they're in the Gulf of California, between Baja California and, and the rest of Mexico. So it's pretty much a Mexican issue and, and a USMCA issue. I, I think it's not going to end up being a WTO issue, I suspect. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that concludes this episode of The Trade Guys. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.